Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Before a new idea can become a way of thinking, before one detail can flip the narrative, before anything that matters can change the world, it must, above all, be known. The duty of the Scripps College of Communication is to bring forth the people who bring forth the knowledge, by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means, they succeed. They say, make it loud, make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories to tell. The rhetoric being espoused by candidate Donald Trump and some of his surrogates during the campaign caused fear and trepidation within several groups of people in America, such as immigrants, Muslims, the LGBTQ community, and African Americans. Now that Trump has won the election and has become President-elect Trump, how do some of these groups feel about his ability to lead? And will their group be targeted for presidential scrutiny or for negative actions to be taken by presidential appointees? Spectrum endeavored to find some answers from members of two of these communities. We spoke with Delphine Batista, the director of the LBGTQ community at Ohio University in Athens, Ohio, and African-American mother and judge, Judge Gail Williams Byers from South Euclid, Ohio, in the southeast corner of Cuyahoga County near Cleveland. Let's begin with Delphine. You lead an LGBTQ center and work with young people. Can you characterize for me what the sort of collective sentiment was before the election, during the campaign, when we heard such misogynistic and homophobic rhetoric and, and sometimes anti-Semitic mm-hmm. rhetoric? Some of us have lived through periods of this before, but the young people that you're with probably haven't. So mm-hmm. how did how did they react? And I think prior to the election, the common sentiment amongst folks was frustration, also confusion. Uh, I think a lot of folks uh, were confused by uh, the nomination first of, of, of Donald Trump and a lot of the rhetoric and questioning whether is it a show? Does he really believe these things? And so just a lot of overall confusion over the rhetoric that he was espousing and others within his his party and other spokespeople for him. The concern amongst folks when it came to, to Hillary Clinton was, in general, a silence uh, about a commitment to LGBTQ justice. And folks felt that that silence 
spoke volumes. Uh, and when she finally did endorse the LGBT community, some folks took it as she is using this as a token. She's just using this as a way yeah, to, to get votes. Uh, and so um, what I've heard from activists, students, community members, and just even the tone of different social media posts is this was not the most LGBT-friendly or LGBT-inclusive election, on top of all of the rhetoric that has been said about LGBT people throughout the election. Um, and so, did, did that surprise you? Because uh, I think by any standards, there had been some gains mm-hmm. in civil rights for and equality for LGBT uh, community members. And then all of a sudden, this election was like, a different universe. It mm-hmm. was like a different world. I was surprised and not surprised. It's sort of a, a both and. It, I think, reflects the common misconception that last summer's Supreme Court decision in favor of marriage equality solved all our problems. And people aren't paying attention to employment discrimination, to bullying in schools, to everything that's happening around immigration, access to health care. A lot of folks are like, oh, they can get married now. What else do they want? And, and so the silence around LGBT issues specifically was surprising, but also not surprising, given that that's the common uh, sort of belief that a lot of people had up to the Supreme Court decision and then after the Supreme Court decision that marriage equality would solve all of the problems of the world. And we know that that's not true, that there's still a substantial amount of work to, to be done. But as you shared, within the last 10 years, maybe even longer, but especially these last 10 years, we have made a lot of progress that now sits in limbo because we're not sure what direction folks are going to take. Now, I know from from hearing other interviews with you since the election, you, you've tried to be upbeat. Uh, <laughs> and and maybe upbeat is is too as uh, an exaggeration, but were you seeing devastation in not just with the students that you represent, mm-hmm. but, but the community that you represent. I think there was an overall defeatist tone, attitude, and my concern was people getting stuck there. And so that folks could be angry, folks can be sad, folks can be scared, folks can be all of those things at the same time, but to challenge folks not to get stuck there, that there's still work to be done. We can still continue to fight. There are congressional elections that will happen within two years. I mean, that there are other things that that we can do. And so, yes, be angry, be sad, be confused, but don't get stuck there. And I think that's something that a lot of us, especially activists, end up doing. Something doesn't turn out as we expect, and then we end up getting stuck in this everything is horrible. Uh, It it almost... uh seems like a grieving process. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really is uh, with some of the people that I've talked with following sort of the seven stages of grief. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you see that that same similarity? Yeah, there there and that my concern is people just getting stuck and not making it to step seven or beyond, uh, just sort of staying in, in a place of, of grieving and and mourning. And I feel that there that needs to be honored. 
but we need to do more because the reality is trans people are still being discriminated against. Trans people are still being killed. Kids in schools are still being bullied. We're not protected as LGBT folks when it comes to employment, when it comes to housing, when it comes to public accommodation. And so mourn, but fast track it, I guess, if that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> mourn, but hurry up. <laughs> right. We've uh, got work to do. Right? Yeah. Uh, and but what I also know is, and a student shared this with me very powerfully, that if we stay stuck in the grief, if we stay stuck in this de- defeatist attitude, all of the efforts of folks who came before us basically go down the drain. Uh, and to honor them and their legacy, and you know, things aren't perfect, but things are a lot better than they were 50, 100 years ago. We need to continue the work that they started, and knowing that folks will come after us to continue the work that we're doing. Uh, And so, but to honor those who have come before us, we need to, yes, mourn, but we also need to keep going. Do you think the issues have changed since the election? Uh, As as before, you you talked about certainly uh, bullying and and physical violence uh, against members of the community and in schools and other ways. Mm -hmm. Uh, You you talked about equality in housing and employment and and basically equal protection under the law Mm -hmm. uh, uh, being recognized. Those issues are still there, I I give you, but, but will the will the field change? Will the targets change with a new administration for people to fight for? I think that's a that's a good question. I don't think that's a good question. That is a good question. Um, I think where we are right now is the issues are 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 still relevant, are are the same. I think the urgency is what has changed. And and so what we've saw this week with, you know, two of our community members getting married and, and more folks getting married in order to have those protections in place. Uh, and then if they're removed at some point, being able to, to fight back. And so I think Lauren and Joe's wedding, one was just a needed celebration at a time where celebration was needed, but also speaks to the urgency of the, the moment that we're in. Uh, and so I'm not necessarily not opposed to marriage equality. It's not my primary issue of a focus, but now that's taking urgency again because people's families, people's relationships are now on the line. And maybe we're just being overly paranoid and come January, none of this happens. I mean, let's hope that that's what happens. Uh, but people, the, the like you've said, the progress that we've made, especially uh, around protections for our families, right now is uncertain. And we saw in California, people were able to get married. And then two days later, those marriages were considered null and void. Uh, And so is that going to happen now? Well, let's start at the top because uh, President-elect Trump uh, gave an interview to 60 Minutes uh, and it, it aired. And it seemed to be internally inconsistent <laughs> in the in the sense that uh, and I'm paraphrasing but he, but he said okay uh, uh, you know gay marriage uh, the, the supreme court ruled on that and and that's fine we aren't going to get there and and that ruling's going to go forward but 
I'm going to do everything in my power to reverse Roe versus Wade, which, mm-hmm. you know, was established in 1973. The marriage equality was established in 2015. Yeah, that just seems internally inconsistent. As an activist, how do you deal with that kind of inconsistency? It's a hot mess. I mean, uh, it, the inconsistency is what I think a lot of folks are scared about. If a person was consistently conservative and so anti-abortion, anti-LGBT, anti-women, anti-immigrant, you know what you're up against. Uh, in this case, we really don't know. Uh, and so he says that he's not going to pay attention to marriage equality, but there's still a seat open in the Supreme Court. We now also have a Republican-controlled Congress. Uh, and so what he may not touch it, but will others try to, to touch it? Uh, and so it's it's scary. And then when you think about overturning Roe versus Wade, like you said, that has been in effect now for some time. What about things that have just come into being? Uh, you know, maybe they're at the bottom of the list, but they're still on the list. <laughs> right. They're still on the list. It is apparent that this next Supreme Court nomination is important, but it won't be the pivotal one because it's replacing Justice Antonin Scalia, and you Mm -hmm. can't be much more conservative than he is. So so it's not going to tip the balance of the court. It's going to still be the balance uh, that that was there when the marriage equality decision Mm -hmm. came came down. It's the next appointment, uh, whether that's Justice Kennedy or Justice Breyer, or Justice uh, Ginsburg, that's going to be the critical mm-hmm. uh, appointment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, I agree, and and that's got to uh, cause some fear and trepidation. Mm-hmm. Looking at the the tenuous balance of the court and the the vacant seat now, whomever fills that seat will that set the tone for the next vacancy. And so I, I think. Yes, in, in many ways, whomever fills this space now isn't necessarily going to tip things one way or the other, but it can give us a tone of what's to come. And a direction. Mm-hmm. We've talked about the, the person at the top, but what I think many of us are looking at right now are the appointments mm-hmm. and the the people who are behind the power. Uh, the the head of Breitbart now being appointed as White House strategist. Um, Mike Pence now taking the place of, of Chris Christie as, as heading the, the mm-hmm. transition team. The Mike Pence appointment to run as vice president and now his appointment and elevated to the trans- transition team, given his history, has to cause some concern. Oh, that's putting it lightly. <laughs> okay. Talk about that. And we know that Mike Pence is vehemently uh, anti-LGBT and a huge proponent of conversion therapies and, and reparative therapies. And there has been a lot of work done at the state level as well as at the federal level uh, to ban conversion therapy. And all professional organizations have all spoken out against reparative therapy. It's scary that that's what he believes should happen and that I potentially can be waterboarded in order to be cured of of my supposed illness. Uh, And so what message is that sending to to young folk, even if 
it's just a rant that he gives and no policy uh, comes from it. He is the vice president, vice president-elect at the moment. Uh, and so what message is that sending to, to young folks? And one of the concerns that a lot of people have, and even just within these last few days, is the increase in potential suicide uh, and people completing suicide or attempting suicide because one of the leaders of their country is saying that they are dysfunctional, that there's something wrong with them and that they need to be cured. Uh, and so a lot of the conversations and concern around Pence have circled around that. Are his policies around LGBT people essentially being disordered? Uh, and so Representative Debbie Phillips uh, introduced uh, a bill here in the state of Ohio, and I know other states have, have done the same. It's a little scary that could those positions be challenged? Could those those policies be challenged? I know separation, federal, state, and that's a whole other confusion of a conversation to have. But he does set a tone in a way and sends uh, a message to folks, even if, again, his policies don't go into effect, just his ranting about it can have an impact. And it's not just him. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, That's the other thing. If he were by himself, okay, fine, but he's if, not. If he were isolated and out there on an island ranting, and mm -hmm. everybody could say, uh, yeah, right, whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, Ben Carson's been appointed the, the vice chairman mm -hmm. of that group. Uh, he compared homosexuality to pedophilia and, and incest. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Newt Gingrich is obviously a player in this new administration. He's the one who referred to uh, gay fascism uh, and the new fascism is mm -hmm. uh, centered in the LGBTQ community. Um, again, that buttressing ha has to be a major concern. Mm -hmm. It's just the, the impact of the rhetoric. We don't know what direction they're going to take. And, and so perhaps uh, we're letting fears take over the, the conversation. But the other reality is we know that suicide rates within the LGBT community are much higher. What we've seen this past, past few years of violence towards trans women, specifically trans women of color, has skyrocketed. Uh, and so everything that's happened from HB2 to religious freedom laws, it's who we are as individuals and as a community is being threatened. And where do we go? Uh, if we're not able to go to our schools, if we're not able to go to work, if we can't go home, where are we supposed to go? And a lot of that is now being put on the line and a lot of that's being put into question uh, at the federal level in case of, of the presidency, but also within Congress and also within uh, state legislatures. Well, that brings me to the point that uh, it seems that a lot of the arguments are, you know, okay, we're not going to deal with this on the federal level. These are not federal rights. Let's kick it back to the states and we'll have a patchwork you can deal with these people one way in Ohio and another way in Texas mm -hmm. and another way in Indiana. Uh, that seems like it has disaster written all over it. it uh, because we're not everyone, for a long time the mentality was if we go to urban areas, if we go to larger cities, LGBT people are generally more accepted. 
Not everyone's able to do that. Not everyone should have to do that. We should be able to live in our communities that we are raised in uh, and belong to and be who we are. And so if we have this patchwork quilt of messiness, basically, uh, this state says yes and this state says no, uh, where are we supposed to go? And I know that a lot of folks were like, oh, if you can't get married in this state, you can go to this other state and get married. And I was like, well, not everyone has the resources to do that. They're using that same argument with abortion. Right. You know, let's put that back on the states. Mm -hmm. and if Ohio bans it, maybe Pennsylvania has it. So you can go to Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. And what we've seen in, in North Carolina in terms of the rhetoric within North Carolina as well as reactions to North Carolina, people can't use the bathroom. I mean, it's a very basic biological need that we all have. Now that's been put into question. And we saw Mississippi uh, pass similar legislation. We saw uh, there was talk about similar legislation here in Ohio, and Governor Kasich said that he wouldn't sign it into law. And so we took a moment to breathe. But... It's, it's scary how this spreads. Uh, and unfortunately, as, as an activist, this is changing slowly and, and, and thankfully. There's not a lot of unity across movements. Uh, and so the reproductive justice folk don't often come to the LGBT folk. And the LGBT folk often don't talk to the immigration folk. And more and more, we're starting to see the need that we all need to come together because all of our issues and all of our lives are being put on the line. These are basic civil rights, whether mm -hmm. it's an immigration issue or whether it's a reproductive mm -hmm. uh, just issue. Going to the doctor to get a flu shot, to know that now my doctor, if they disagree with LGBT folk, can deny me getting a flu shot, let alone something more urgent. And we know that there have been specifically trans people who have been turned away and have died as a result of medical facilities not giving them the attention that they need. And so just going to the doctor because I have a cold or a flu shot, something really basic, just to get some blood work done, that may or may not happen. And so we're not asking for anything grandiose, like give us our own colony. Uh, we're just asking to be able to live our lives like everybody else. What about the argument that Mike Pence uh, almost got caught up in, in fact did get caught up in, the whole religious liberty mm. uh, argument that we've heard now in North Carolina, we've heard other places, mm -hmm. but uh, uh, in substance it, it's basically that if exercising some normal service or civil right to a person who uh, either tells me that they're gay or I perceive are mm -hmm. gay, and I do that for uh, if I don't give them service because my religion tells me I shouldn't, that that's okay. I, that's that's mm -hmm. a mm -hmm. terrible paraphrase of it, but it's the sum and substance right. mm -hmm. of it. Do you fear that these kinds of things now are going to have new fuel? Yeah. I mean, we've seen that with pharmacists who are refusing to prescribe, to fill prescriptions for contraception. Uh, and just like your role in that moment is a pharmacist, not as clergy, not as, and sorry that we have to, you know, make compartments for identity, but your role in the moment is to provide this service. Regardless of your religious beliefs or cultural beliefs or, or values, need to do your job. Uh, and so everything that we saw in Kentucky with, with marriage equality being challenged, the law of the land is marriage equality. If you disagree with it, you can disagree with it, but your function is to provide those marriage licenses. 
Uh, and so I think, and I don't want to make us into compartments and divide our, our identities because I do believe in, in being holistic. Uh, but what we saw soon after the, the Supreme Court decision in Kentucky and then what we saw in Indiana with religious freedom, it is how is that spreading? Uh, and we know that, okay, we live in a country that values separation of church and state. Well, now we have religious figures who are telling us what the state is supposed to do, uh, and it's freedom from religion. And so essentially these folks are imposing their religious values onto us. I am not expecting to go to a Catholic church and ask the priest to marry Jason and myself. I wouldn't do that uh, because religious organizations are exempt. And so this fear that institutions have that they are going to be forced to do something that goes against their beliefs isn't there's no grounds for that uh, because it's there not, are exemptions. not a reality. Right. Uh, and folks know where they can go and where, where they can't go. When it comes to restaurants, when it comes to bakeries, which is what we've seen a lot of bakers uh, not wanting to make cakes for, for couples who, who are getting married, that's where it's – it's tricky, and the response that a lot of folks give is, oh, they can just go to another bakery. Well, if you live in Athens, Ohio, are there different bakeries that we could turn to or, or people who have home businesses? Yes, but there aren't many. Uh, and so who are we supposed to go to? Oh, go to the next county. Well, I can't, no one, I can't get to Parkersburg every day. I can't get to Columbus every day. Uh, and so... Go to an urban center. Right. right? <laughs> when it comes to businesses, I think it's where it gets a little tricky. And I, I don't know if there's an easy answer to that because people should be able to believe what they want to believe. But where does that begin and end and where does but if my beliefs begin and end? But providing a service. Right. And so for me, it's public, about service. Then it, it, it transcends. Right. A, a private mm -hmm. – if I were baking cakes at home and giving them or selling them to my friends, right. that's one thing. If I uh, advertise and have a shop that's open to anyone who walks in the door, the argument could be made that's something totally different. Right. And so I think that's the, the distinction that needs to be made. However, it's not being made and we've conflated – the private, public, personal is political, the political is personal. And, and so uh, there's a lot of, I think very much conversations are needed to fine tune, fine tune a lot of this stuff. But I think what ends up happening is folks start to argue and, and it becomes a, a debate and the butting of heads and folks aren't sitting down and talking. When I've spoken to very conservative friends of mine or friends that People I know in my life, I don't know if they're, I can still consider them friends, uh, who are, are ultra-conservative, when you lay out the groundwork of what people are asking for, it's when they get it. Or when you give a story, there was a lot of concern over, I believe it was Missouri, uh, a gay male couple. One of the men was arrested because he refused to leave the side of his dying partner. Uh, and so a petition went around that the Department of Health would stop hospitals from doing that. And a, a person on my Facebook page was just like, oh, you know, why are you always asking for special rights? And I was like, I'm not asking for special rights. If I'm dying or Jason as my beloved is dying, we should have the right to have whomever we want by our side. And when you frame it that way, it's when they get it. 
Uh, and so I think a lot of these very heady, abstract, ideological debates that we're having need to be grounded in reality. And what do we mean? And what does this actually look like? And here is a humanization of, of the issue. But I think oftentimes we get caught up in the issues being very abstract. We saw that with Senator Portman. Senator Portman was anti-LGBT until his son came out. And then he was in support of marriage equality. Then he was in support of employment protections. Uh, and so it's the humanization of the issues that I think all of us are, are lacking right now. Speaking of humanizations, uh, the Pulse shootings uh, in <laughs> Orlando uh, happened during the campaign. Yes. It seemed like as a nation, we spent maybe a week, um, maybe 10 days paying attention to this horrific targeting of, mm -hmm. of the LGBTQ community in, in Orlando. A couple of questions about that. Does that make you angry, that the transitory nature of our public concern over such an outrage? I blame Facebook and social media. No offense to Mark Zuckerberg. Um, <laughs> and I think more and more that is is the reality. It's in our face for a few minutes and then something else comes up and that's what we, we pay attention to. Part of my anger, part of my frustration, part of my worry is that most if not all of the individuals who were killed were people of color. Uh, and so if this would have been an all-white establishment, would we still be talking about it? Or similarly, would it, given it's 10 days, and then now we move on to the next issue? Uh, and so we have no way of, of really knowing that, but it is a question that myself and, and many other activists of color, specifically LGBTQ folks of color, have asked that because this was primarily immigrants, primarily uh, uh, people of, of Latinx or Latino, Latina uh, descent, potentially even undocumented individuals, given that they're people of color, or they're more expendable than if it would have been an all-white establishment. And again, I don't want, I don't wish this on anyone and don't want it to be repeated, but it is sort of an interesting conundrum or, or something to, to percolate over. What lessons, if any, did we learn from, from that horrific incident? I think it was a reminder that there is still a lot of work to be done. And laws may change. It doesn't necessarily mean people's hearts and minds change. Uh, and so the, the need for ongoing work. I think the other reminder to myself personally is as the director of the center, I advocate for safer spaces on campus, safer spaces in, in the community this was our safe space and it was violated and so where are we safe uh and i don't have an answer to that but it's a, a question that i am continuously wrestling with that uh we say safe space but what does that mean uh and what happens when it's violated what happens when it someone comes in and makes it unsafe i think the last point of of the pulse shootings uh one of the the individuals who was killed was a mom and right. uh, she pushed her child out of the way. And yes, he was a grown man, but she pushed her baby, she pushed her child out of the way. And as tragically beautiful as that is, for folks who have had a hard time with their parents or with their families, that moment, as sad as it was and is, 
has given some folks hope that our families potentially can come around, that our families love us to the point that they would push us out of harm's way and, and take a bullet or, or receive whatever harm is, is coming. And so just even in conversations with my mother, that has been something that I've been musing over and others have been musing over because it's sad. And I mean, I, I don't want parents to now be shot in front of their, their, their kids. But I think it gives us uh, a lot of hope that parents, families can come around. Uh, and it's sad that it took something like this for us to to have that realization, but it's something that has come last, actually, that, that I will say. When we had the, the vigil uh, on College Green by the monument, it was really powerful to see folks come together across identity lines. Were there folks in that grouping who don't agree with LGBT people? Perhaps, but they were able to put that aside and say, you know, this was wrong and we're coming together in solidarity with something horrific that happened and this shouldn't happen. And, you know, we need to, to come together and fight the hate and, and, and fight the violence, even when it may not impact us directly or even if we disagree with it on, on some level. And so standing on the monument and looking out into the crowd, just for myself personally, was very powerful to see so many people gathered in solidarity who yesterday may have had an argument. Today, we're here together. We talked earlier about uh, the grieving process and and uh, anger and some kind sometimes despondency uh, going on right now it seems when there is grieving or when there is fear and that fear I think is is entwined with all of this that creates a vacuum mm. and People in power love to see vacuums because oh, yeah. they zoom in to fill that vacuum. I'm sure I would least hope that the LGBTQ community is not waiting for the next no. incident, whether mm -hmm. certainly, God help us, that it wouldn't be a pulse incident, but the next governmental incident. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then react to that because if one's reacting, one's always on the defensive right. and one's always at a disadvantage. Uh, are there plans? Are there uh, are there discussions of what to do now and, yeah. and where to go from here? I think the first thing is people are starting to move past the, the grief and rather than letting it bring them down, using it as – a catalyst to, to start something and, and to spark something and to use anger in a transformative way rather than in a, a destructive way. And so what I've seen online in different listservs that I'm a part of, what I've seen on social media and just discussions that I've had with folks in the center and outside of the center is that folks are starting to mobilize uh, and folks realize that, okay, presidential election is what it is, but we also now have congressional elections and we can start these petitions and we can write letters to the editor and we can put ourselves out there that there are th small things 
that pack of wallop that can ripple into much larger things uh, that are starting to, to happen. I know that some of the student activists on campus and in activists in this area and in general are starting to come together and like, okay, your issue is climate change, my issue is LGBT equality. Well, we can work together and we are going to face this hand in, in hand. I think one of the other things that I've shared with a lot of high school students especially is, okay, you can't vote, but that doesn't that doesn't necessarily mean you can't post something to Twitter. And I mean, we've seen hashtags blow up in, in very powerful, transformative ways and how they have sparked whole movements and just thinking of hashtag Black Lives Matter. And, mm-hmm. and so there, there are things that, that people can do and to voice their concerns, to voice their frustrations, and to join their voices with others. And and so what that'll mean come January, what that'll mean come 2020, we don't know. Uh, but that there are things that, that can be done in order, one, to support each other through whatever is about to come, and two, potentially nudge it. And we may not be able to push it as far as we would like, but even a nudge is is something to to be celebrated and so we've already started to to see folks coming together and the human rights campaign the national uh, lgbtq task force lambda legal uh southerners on on new ground a lot of our national organizations and local organizations have started to find ways to rally folks okay we're going to fast track through the, you know, the steps of mourning, <laughs> you know, and, and get to action. Yeah, we need to, to do something because we can do something. Uh, and what that something is going to be is going to look different for, for many different types of folk, from folks writing letters to the editor to folks having a conversation like you and I are having to rallies and, and demonstrations and how all of that will work hand in hand. What are allies or people who are sympathetic with the issues and and the causes. What are they missing in this discussion? I think first and and, and foremost, the the realization that to be an ally is a verb and that there there is action and and, and life to, to be embodied. And two, to recognize that as a non-LGBT person, so as a cisgender heterosexual individual, that person calling out an anti-LGBT slur, that person advocating on behalf of LGBT people, in some spaces and contexts, packs more of a wallop than if I, as an LGBT person, do the same thing. And so recognizing the power that they have in that moment, so the question becomes, how do they use it? Uh, and so we've seen this along uh, racial lines when the white community calls out the white community for racism, it has a, an impact. When a man calls out another man, when they say something sexist, that has a certain impact. And so for allies to the LGBT community uh, and accomplices to the LGBT community, I think it's recognizing that power. The trickiness becomes that they're not abusing it and speaking for us or putting words in our mouth, but lifting up our, our narratives and bringing our narratives and experiences, questions, concerns, but also resiliencies into spaces that we don't have access to and that that is appreciated, that this shouldn't depend just on 
the LGBT community that it really does take a village. To, it takes a village to raise a child. It takes a village to make sure that that child can thrive. Uh, and so that we are all in this together, whether you identify with the community or not. Not identifying with the community does grant a person a certain amount of, of privilege or ability that those of us within the community don't always have. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University seeks to not only educate its students about today's communication industry, but to produce innovative leaders who will shape the future of communication and its methods of delivery in a rapidly changing technological landscape. Scripps provides leadership in communication by preparing students to be effective and responsible communicators in a global society and by advancing the field through creative activity and research. The Scripps College of Communication fosters multicultural awareness within a diverse community. It strives to create a climate of civility where leadership and innovation are prized and responsibility and accountability are understood. The college values curriculum, research, and creative activity that provide benefits to people regionally, nationally, and globally. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Judge Gail Williams Byers, or Judge Gail as she likes to be called, is an Ohio municipal court judge and a mother of a mixed-race teenage son in the suburbs of Cleveland. We talked after the, the Pulse shootings and after a lot of the police shootings of African-American men, and, and we talked after Dallas and the shootings of the police officers. But all of that seems fairly early in the campaign. And now that we've gone through one of the most hateful campaigns in modern times anyway, and have a new president, I wanted to revisit these issues and see how the people I talk to feel now. So so how do you feel after the election, both as an African-American mother of a teenage son and as an African-American representative on the court as a, as a judge? I will tell you, Tom, I am I'm slightly conflicted as a mother of a African-American teenage son in America because I'll tell you there isn't, um, uh, but for the election, there isn't a whole lot um, that has changed. We haven't changed the makeup of police forces. We haven't changed wholesale the mindset, I believe, of, of entire communities of how they view minority groups. Um, we have not really addressed holistically the divide that exists in America when it comes to the the really important issue of race and America. And until we do that, even an election won't necessarily change that. Now, is it an important marker in our history? Absolutely. 
and I'll share this story with you because I it's the sort of the one thing that has really stuck with me since the election, mm-hmm. which was the morning after. Right. I could tell the the night of the election my my son who has now become particularly in tune with the political pulse, I'll say. He was very um, engaged in how the night was unfolding. I had managed to take myself to sleep even for, before the final results were announced and learned only the next morning what had come of, of the, the election. And so my husband returns the following morning after having taken our son to school and I had not yet let I had not yet left to go to work, and he says to me, "You know, um, the boy is really concerned, and he's talking about going to Canada." And I said, "Well, why?" And so he explains to me that they had a conversation, and it's their morning drive to school, and in their morning drive to school, the day after the election, my son. Um, explains to his father that he is, quote, afraid. And he's afraid because now we have a president who, in his eyes, as a young black man, we have a president who hates blacks, not just dislikes, but hates blacks, who hates Muslims, who does not like Mexicans, and Everyone is going to be targeted. Everyone is going to get kicked out. And so he might as well leave now because everybody's family is going to be broken up. This is for a child who goes to a school that is multicultural, multiracial, multiethnic, who lives in an equally diverse community, who lives in an equally diverse family, and it was genuinely unsettling. My husband describes how it was the balance of the morning to settle this child down. And if we expect that at the age of 17 or 18 or 15 or 16 that our children are mature enough to discern that this is rhetoric and not reality, I submit to you that it is not, and they are not, but that actions and that words are powerful and that they absorb these words and they own them as the reality of their experience. And so that is exactly what happened with my child. And he has been particularly vocal and pensive, I'll say, ever since. Now, that is really scary for me, because I still believe that we can hope for better. I mean, let's just be honest that, you know, the elections have consequences. Not every side wins, not every side loses. And I'm confident for those who had no faith in President Obama, they feel like they have endured eight years. They've endured eight years. And so, Though for those who have no idea what to expect for the next four years, there will be perhaps the idea of endurance for those four years. But for my child, there is not the idea of endurance. There is the idea of living in fear, and fear that 
perhaps is founded at least in part on the the words and the rhetoric that he has heard because he's been fairly immersed in the process. He has not been deafened to what has happened. He's heard it all, and now he's absorbed it all. And now it's the duty of the parents to pick up the pieces and live with the carnage. Um, I did say the day after, however, to um, one of my staff that as a judge, I was at least okay with the idea that our framers were forward-thinking enough and that they were thoughtful and ingenious enough to create three separate and equal co-branches of government. And that my branch of government is not dependent upon the executive branch of government. And so in the spirit of checks and balances, the judiciary is not perhaps dependent upon um, a, a certain person being in the White House. And so I am heartened by that. And I don't believe that there is a deep impact yet. And I say yet because one can never tell, and I don't know. But I do know that um, to be inoculated to that degree is really encouraging. And so I'm I'm heartened by that. I'm happy um, to the degree that I feel like I can still do my work and still impact lives positively and still dispense justice unscathed without regard to whom is in the White House. Well, let me go back and and ask a couple of questions that have come up uh, in my mind as as you were talking, Judge. And and let's let's go back to your mother role uh, first. Uh, We talked earlier about uh, you being concerned about your son when he goes out, that he comes home alive. In fact, uh, you said, you know, you tell him often, just come home alive. Uh, we can work things out after that. Mm-hmm. And we talked from that that, you know, race is a issue that was still not being discussed. It was not being uh, resolved in in many ways and we were talking at that time when we had an african american president that with an african american president race was not even being properly perhaps properly talked about or examined or resolved now that we have a, a a president, and I'm not talking about party, but I'm talking about with a different philosophy, at least espoused during the campaign, and a president who seems to surround himself with people that um, probably would not share your personal views on race. Does that concern you that we're never going to get to that topic or that that topic is is going to take steps backward in resolution? Um, I think that there are legitimate concerns about what may or may not be the catalyst 
to bring those thoughtful conversations forward. But what I do see, Tom, is a conversation that does not begin perhaps even at the top, but that it is a groundswell and that the conversations are starting, the movements are starting at base level and that eventually they rise to the top or the top can no longer ignore it such that it must and it shall be acknowledged. It can no longer be ignored. And because it can no longer be ignored, it beckons, it calls, it requires a greater audience, a greater forum, a greater focus. And insofar as it perhaps may not be a priority to a new administration, a new federal administration, it does not mean that it is not a priority to the boots on the ground, if you will, to those who are affected at base level. If these things are all interconnected, and when I say these things, I mean, you know, the the economic depression, the you know, feelings of racial injustice, the tension the between different ethnicities, the nativism of of individuals or communities or the thoughts or philosophies thereof. If all of these are somewhat interconnected, I commit to you and I submit that there will be and there is no doubt a groundswell that starts in some neighborhoods, some communities, some hamlet, somewhere that ultimately causes those at the highest levels to look down or reach back or to look over and to acknowledge that these things can no longer be ignored, whether it is on your list of things to do or not. It doesn't really matter because if indeed these are the people, we the people are the ones that are to be served, then I submit as well that we the people will set the agenda and that these things are the the things that are creating the heartbeat of America. The fact that there are so many that are still disheartened by the belief systems that are embraced by others and that this place we call America, this salad bowl or melting pot, is one that there's a belief belongs to all of us, not just some of us or one of us or two of us, but each one of us. But when we begin to, if there is a spirit of divisiveness, there will be a call from the lowest levels up to the highest level. There will be a call to respond to it, the question becomes how, if at all, those at the highest levels are prepared to respond, if at all. I don't believe that there will be an ability to turn a blind eye to it for long periods of time. We've seen this even now, and I'll tell you um, that even after the announcement of the election results and the protests that began soon thereafter, I saw and I watched and believed that it would be something that would soon die down or soon give way to 
um, to something, you know, far smaller or yeah, more peaceful. More normal. Or more normal. But can I, I'll also say, but just yesterday, I saw and learned that we're into day eight of continuing protest. And so it begs the question of, will we break the will of the people by ignoring them, or will we come to the table and reason with the fact that we have some deep-seated, deeply rooted challenges that must be dealt with? And yes, they will. They have the ability to really, really divide us more. And in order to to bring us together, we have to deal with the original sins, the deep-rooted issues, those things that we have always shunned or failed to recognize, they must be acknowledged and they must be dealt with. More than just acknowledging them, they must be dealt with. Let's take that thought, though, and circle back to to your son. Uh, for a mom, what he said, that he wanted to move to Canada to avoid being targeted further. That that had to hit you in the heart. And we're putting all partisan politics aside. I don't think this is a partisan issue at this point. This is a, a real personal uh, human issue. What, what, if you could share with us, what do you say to a young man who is uh, serious about his thoughts what what is a mom do do you say to this young man to to give him some hope well tom first you start by hiding the passport <laughs> okay home and know that your child is still there okay <laughs> that's the, the first step but i think also that um we owe it to our our children to infuse hope where in situations that seem hopeless. That I don't know how our new president will govern, no more than my son knows. But he's relying on us to either react or respond even to his fears. And so my response to him is to say, first of all, I can understand or empathize with your sentiment, with where you're coming from. Your words aren't falling on deaf ears. It's not as if they are not grounded in something. However, we have to give everybody a chance. And for as much as he, I understand he is fearful of even extending that chance, it is the idea that we as Americans, we as peace-loving individuals, we as hopeful people have to believe in the best of folks. Now, they may, we hope that they will prove us right. It is entirely possible that that may not happen. But it will not be because we're not cheering for their success, because their success is our success. And so I said to him, you know, going to Canada doesn't make you any less of a proud American. 
you're still an American in Canada. <laughs> and what I have to also tell you is that we don't run from what we perceive to be a problem, even if we don't know if it's a problem or not. We don't know if it's a problem or not. We know what we think might be a problem, but we don't quite know yet. And so we have to give it a chance before we jump off the cliff or we ride out into the sunset and take off and say we are so afraid that we won't even stand or stay to see what might happen. Let, let me switch back to, to court and um, bear with me with my question because it might be a little obtuse. But Ohio uh, bellwether state yet again. Uh, if you look at the Rust Belt states of Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, uh, I think most analysts agree that there was a group of people uh, who felt disenfranchised uh, that rallied uh, around then-candidate Trump, now President-elect Trump, as the outsider who was going to bring about change and perhaps give them hope. You come and you are a judge in a very mixed cultural area in, in Northeast Ohio. Is that – have you seen signs of that feeling of disenfranchisement? Have you seen – uh, evidence of that before it came to the ballot box? What I'll tell you we saw here in this area, because I'm on the east side of Cuyahoga County, which is the presumably the largest Democratic stronghold in the state of Ohio. Right. And so what we saw here was signs of perceived disenfranchisement, but not at the highest levels. When I tell you the president, um, President Obama probably enjoys a higher popularity rating in this area than he does nationally. Um, it, it is probably the likelihood. And so um, to the issue of transferability, whether or not that has completely had completely transferred to um Secretary Clinton uh, obviously remains to be seen, although I'll tell you I believe she did very well in this particular area because what we did see was lots of support for Secretary Clinton, not as much support on the east side of Cleveland, um, which is, as you said, very diverse, very, um, very mixed racially, ethnically, um, and you could see that you see that in the community. So she enjoyed a lot of support, and but I'll also tell you, back and and sort of looping back even to what I was saying about my son, is the difference. However, was that the disenfranchisement I believe that that people felt was in in other areas of government. For example, the Cleveland Police Patrolmen's Association, the CPPA, endorsed. Um, Donald Trump, and there's been this real tension between police and communities, 
in this area for some of the obvious reasons, and those tensions continue. With that endorsement was at least out of the the black community, the feeling that it would embolden police to continue along the vein of mis- or maltreatment of minorities, particularly blacks or Hispanics, um, that tended to bear the brunt of the unfavorable treatment at the hands of police officers. Whether there's truth to that is beyond the point, because perception for so many is truth. They're one and the same. Right. And so that's where the heart, if you will, of the disenfranchisement perhaps comes into play. Now, on the west side of Cleveland, and I'm speaking about western suburbs, Parma, Parma Heights, Strongsville, and the like, right. that's the side where, which tended to be more homogenous, um, not as diverse not, um, with regard to race or ethnicity, although there is some mild diversity, not by much. I mean, it hasn't been by much historically, but you saw greater um, percentages and and more evidence of support for Mr. Trump in those areas, in those suburbs. And so things tended to break along lines similar to that, where you had these huge influxes on the east side where communities were you know, largely um, diverse for the Secretary Clinton, and then when they were, they tended to be more homogenous. That's when they fell primarily for Mr. Trump. I, I've read some analysis, and I want to get your sense on this because you and I have talked before about women in politics. Uh, I've read some analysis that in some of the uh, minority voting blocks, uh, the African-American bloc, the Latino bloc, uh, that some of the votes that went for Mr. Trump perhaps were votes against having a woman president. Do you feel that gender in your view or in your area, played any role in presidential selection? Or if it did, what kind of role? Honestly, Tom, I cannot say that it was gender so much. Um, I believe that there may have been times when maybe women as a voting bloc may have seemed to be a little harder or um, a little more strict in their in their determining of who would make a better president um, than maybe if, if there were two men running. Uh-huh. And so to that degree, maybe gender had some role. I also believe that there may have been um, some expectations for the first female candidate that may or may not have been applied to other presidential candidates that preceded 
And because of that, um, that there was a, a maybe a heightened level of scrutiny that was applied in this instance that perhaps had not been applied in previous instances. Mm-hmm. And whether that knowingly or unknowingly came from other women, yes, that perhaps could have been the case. But I'll also tell you that even there was the issue of, of women, but there was, I think, the greater issue of enthusiasm. There was great enthusiasm um, in 2008 and 2012 for Democrats. Not so much, I believe, um, in this last election when it came to Democrats. And what that is attributable to, I believe, are a myriad of reasons um, that there was perhaps not as much enthusiasm attributable to electing what was seen as the first woman president as there was to electing the first black president. And there, I believe, are factors related to both of those. And though there, I'm confident, are political scientists across the globe that are willing to meet out those several factors attributable in in each of those instances, but I am convinced that there are um, there were factors in both um, that led to greater enthusiasm in the former than the latter. Well, once again, Judge Gale, we appreciate your insights. Uh, we know you have to get to court and, and get up back up on the bench, and so uh, we appreciate your time as always. Oh, Tom, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the fact that you have taken this um, this topic, and you've taken this role, and you are taking it to another level. Um, we are beginning to have the candid ground-level conversations that I am speaking of, that whether we ever reach the highest levels of government with these conversations, I believe that the the greatest ones and the, the greatest movements don't start at the top. They really start at the bottom, and that we actually lead from behind and that we encourage our leaders to do what's right by all of us, sometimes by showing them the way. So thank you for being a beacon and for helping to guide us through what will no doubt be a very interesting and momentous time and yet another mark in American history. Today we've talked with an LGBTQ Center Director, Delphine Batista, and a black mother and judge, Judge Gail Williams-Byers, about the aftermath of this month's presidential election. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum at iTunes Podcasts, Google Play, or at NPR One. We welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through iTunes. If you have questions or comments about our podcasts, please direct them to me by email. You can do that at hodson at ohio.edu. Again, that's Hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.